the Lord God is exalted. And if I may be so frank, the Lord God is exalted whether I exalt him or not. And he's exalted whether you exalt him or not. And he's exalted whether we exalt him or not. Therefore, let me and you and we exalt him in a manner that is worthy to his name, lest we find ourselves on the wrong side of eternity. So this morning, the end has come, part four, as we continue in our study in Amos, what we have learned in chapter eight. And so a brief review this morning, kind of bring us up to speed as is our habit as we're looking through the book of Amos. We've considered that the sin of Jeroboam the first that caused this prophet to come and to proclaim the word that he saw to the people of Israel is not simply the demonic paganism that had come with so many kings before him. But instead, Jeroboam did something very specific. He didn't flee after other gods. Instead, he took the God of Israel and refashioned him into the manner that he thought he should be. You see... God in the fullness of his character it just wasn't very practical for what Jeroboam had going on. He needed him to be something different. He needed to smooth off the rough edges. He needed to change some directions and, and focus on a different emphasis. And so... He raised up two golden calves, and he didn't call them something else. He didn't use them for the worship of Horus or of Baal or of Asherah. But he said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that brought you forth from Egypt. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, they immediately followed the king in falling into the vilest of depravity, the madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth of God that was set before them. And so some generations later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, and two years before the earthquake, Amos, a simple shepherd from Tekoa, didn't hear, but he saw the word of the Lord. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And all of this happens when a very partial God shows no partiality, when he displays an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any that has ever come out of hate. And the word to the house of Israel is a word of woe particularly to those who are the least willing to be woeful, those who have a feeling that gives them comfort, not a, not a truth, not a, not a fact, but a, a feeling of ease and security. And yet their feelings do not match reality, for they are neither easy nor secure. They're in denial of their situation all the way unto their annihilation. And they do so by bringing their God in their own hand. This, O Israel, 
is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. They made their God to look the way they wanted him to look. And the way they wanted him to look, coincidentally, was a lot like them. And when your God looks an awfully lot like you, you end up looking awfully righteous and feeling awfully secure, even when in fact you're not. As we move through the book of Amos, such provocation against his character makes a holy God swear. And having none greater to swear by, he swears by himself. He swears the promise of salvation to his people, and he swears death to those who would trample it underfoot, for the Lord brings discipline. And Amos will see a hard word. A word, as a matter of fact, that the land cannot bear. And yet, in the strength of the Lord, Amos will bear it. God willing... So will we. Man, in all of Amos chapter 8 stands is this gauntlet being thrown down by God before his people Israel of what he will do because of their sin. And over the last four weeks, we have picked it apart. And so this morning... Let us take a moment to kind of zoom out, if we will, and consider the things that we have learned in Amos chapter 8. Number one, things are not always what they seem to be. In Amos chapter 1, we see the Lord God showing the prophet his word. And what he sees is a basket of summer fruit. As a matter of fact, it says in Amos chapter 8, verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, the first thing that my pops into my head is kind of reverting back to either a high school or kind of an introduction to art, kind of freshman level college class, and a picture, a painting of still life of a basket or a bowl of fruit. You know what it looks like. You know, it's got an apple and an orange and a banana and some grapes that are probably, you know, very artistically kind of spilling over the edge, right? And it's a very, and it's probably not in super sharp focus or detail. It's got that kind of nice soft morning light thing going on. The kind of painting that you wouldn't look at up real close, but you would want to kind of stand back and take it all in for its effect. And yet, what things seem to be and what they actually are are two completely different things. This is not the first fruits of the harvest that would cause us to be hopeful about what the remainder of the season was going to bring. This is not the the bulk of the intake when you're filling your silos and preparing for lean times to come. In Israel, the fruit that comes in the summer is the last. And so it is that this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And what do you answer other than 
what you see. And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, and here is the Lord God revealing the truth that exists apart the truth that exists apart from opinion and the truth that exists apart from hopefulness the truth that exists apart from relativistic thinking but stands as an absolute the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. You see, one of the things that we see so clearly in the book of Amos is that things are not always the way they seem, and feeling is not fact, and emotion is not truth. If you want to put it in today's context, the reality is, is there is no such thing as your truth or my truth. There is only the truth. Truth is not relative to your circumstance. It's not relative to your experience. Truth is absolute. It is what it is. And it is defined by the good character of of an eternal and immutable God. Therefore, the Lord says in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. You say, if the truth is that these people aren't secure, how is it that they are able to feel secure? Now, I want you to just kind of step back for a minute with me and consider the peril of this situation. Friends, there is nothing more dangerous than thinking you're safe when you're not. There is nothing more dangerous than feeling secure when, in fact, you are insecure. As a matter of fact, have you, have you ever been in that kind of position where in, 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 in unwillful ignorance, that is to say just you didn't know, that you did something that was incredibly stupid and incredibly dangerous and then later came to the knowledge of the truth of how dangerous or stupid that thing was and almost had a heart attack or delayed endocrine response? Man, we, I won't name names. I won't name names. We're down at church camp one year, and, you know, they've got the whole ropes course thing, and the kids love it. And the youth, the youth do it, and, and the kids, they want to be youth, and they're always aspiring to do the, you know, you get those, especially some of those, you know the kids I'm talking about. The ones that can't wait to graduate to the next thing. And so with some of these things on the rope course, you know, there's, it's not so much a height requirement, it's a, it's a bulk requirement. So they got these, these harnesses and you, they have to fit and they have to fit to a certain snugness or they're not safe and they won't let you go. And so, as a matter of fact, the church voted last year, we bought some harnesses because we had so many kids that wanted to do stuff, they didn't have enough. And so we just bought some and took them, right? So we had this one little boy, like I said, I won't name names. 
And there is this pamper pole thing, which is just a big old telephone pole, about 35, 40 feet tall, big old telephone pole, and you stand, you climb up it, you stand on top, and you jump for a trapeze that not very many people can get. And certainly not a boy this tall. And so they rig him up in the harness, and it's got a it's got the waist harness and around your legs and the over-the-chest harness, and it's all snatched together, and they got the helmet on him, and it's cranked down where it fits right in the chin strap and the whole thing. And he just sprints over to the pole to start climbing, which would be fine if the climbing rope had been attached to the harness. So he's harnessed and helmeted up, buddy. He's going up this pole and he's going to jump off. And then, you know, of course, I mean, they run him down. No, you know, pull him back. He felt secure. He wasn't. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the Mount of Samaria. Why? Because of Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Just because it seems a certain way, just because it feels a certain way, just because when you look and the Lord says, what do you see? And you go, well, I see a basket of summer fruit. Isn't that pleasant? When the Lord says, no, it's not, then it's not. Things aren't always what they seem. Amos chapter 8 teaches us, number one, that things aren't always what they seem. Number two, it teaches us that the judgment of God is real. The judgment of God is real. It's not a talking point. It's not a lever to leverage you toward a decision that the preacher wants you to make? Boy, isn't that how often the judgment of God gets used? There's a decision that I want you to make. There's a decision that the, the preacher wants you to make, that the evangelist wants you to make, that your mom wants you to make, that your friend wants you to make. There's a decision that your boyfriend or your girlfriend wants you to make because if you don't make it, they're not quite sure if you're for them or not. There's a decision that somebody wants you to make, and so we speak about the judgment of God as a lever to put pressure on you to get you to move to a position that we desire. We were driving through Mississippi yesterday, and there is a church sign that said, Hell is hot, heaven is not. I wish they had just burned that sign down. What a ridiculous thought. What a ridiculous thought that a creature that is in such rebellion that they will not bow the knee before a holy creator, that the idea that if you inform them that hell is hot, somehow that's going to affect their rebellion. What a ridiculous concept. It is paltry, it is small, and it is insulting both to the God who sits on the throne and to the creature in rebellion. 
and you wonder why people don't take the church seriously. Hell is hot, heaven is not. Isn't that precious? Friends, let me tell you something. The judgment of God is not a lever. It is not a cudgel designed to provoke a decision in you. It is an absolute reality. The Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, See now that I, even I, am He. See now that I, even I, am He. Does that sound redundant? Because it is redundant. It's redundant because the Lord is making the point that the point is Him. So see now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Such is the nature of a holy God. The Lord says, I am the judge and I bring the judgment. I do that which I please. I do that which fits the righteous justice of my character. And if that means I kill, then I kill. And if that means I make alive, then I make alive. And this judgment that he brings is tactile. You know what that means? It means you feel it. The songs of the temple. This is verse 3 out of chapter 8. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. The judgment of God is real. The judgment of God is tactile. He said earlier, Chapter 3 is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Why does disaster come? Well, according to what God is telling Amos, the reason disaster comes is because the Lord sends it. And so often the people of God scurry around trying to explain away why the disaster that came was not God's fault, but somehow God will help you through it and see you out the other side. The question that I ask off the, off the very top of my head is if God is going to help me out the other side, why didn't he just not let it happen in the first place? But what is so often said anemically by the people of God trying to get God off the hook is the exact opposite of what Scripture says. Scripture says if disaster comes, it comes for a reason. It comes because God sent it, because judgment is real. It's real. It's tactile. It comes in very specific forms. And the reason it comes, man, we just shoot ourselves in the foot. Because what the people of God ought to be saying is the reason that disaster has come is because God hates sin and he judges sin and praise God, he's a gracious God that will forgive sin if you will but seek his face. And so what you've seen in disaster is, is the judgment of God. And so flee 
to him and repent and turn from your ways unless judgment come in its fullness, you see. Friends, that is the gospel. That's the gospel. Is that God hates and judges sin. And you can look around and you can see evidence of that. So by all means, not not as a cudgel to try to get you to make a decision, but as a plea to get you to see the reason of truth in front of you. Turn from your sin that you may live. God judges sin because God hates sin. In Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 8, it says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, you understand what the scepter is. It is the the symbol of authority and power and the ability to execute. And that scepter is a scepter of righteousness. For you have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. You want to know why God judges sin? God judges sin because he hates it. Very simple, very simple concept. He judges sin because he hates sin. He's not bound by some law, some concept of justice that's outside of himself. He's bound by his own character. God hates wickedness. Therefore, he judges wickedness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And because he hates it, he judges it. Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that being Moses. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In Amos chapter 8, we see that things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. We see that the judgment of God is real, that it is tactile, and if you kind of want to put a sub-point on the nature of the judgment of God being real, what we learn out of Amos chapter 8 is those that being, are being judged contrary to the, the popular movement of our day, contrary to what you see with the, the vitriol and, 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 and the flopping and, and the spewing on social media, that when judgment that is real comes upon people that aren't expecting it because things aren't what they seem, that the response of those people ought to be to shut their mouths. Silence. Boy, you won't see that out of the fallen creature. No, what they're going to do is contend with the God who judges them. They're going to argue. They're going to accuse. They're going to spew 
vitriol, they're going to flop. And they'll do it on Facebook. And they'll do it on Twitter 1.0 and 2.0. Don't think anything's really going to change. They'll do it on Instagram. Am I making myself look old and outdated? Is there something newer I should be talking about when it comes to social media? I told the guy the other day, they were talking about the evils of social media at the Southern Baptist Convention and how, how we had to be really careful not to overdo it. And he said, what do you think about social media? I said, I just can't get off it. I just can't do it, man. I've tried. It's in past the barb. Can't get off it. And he said, well, brother, I'll pray for you. I said, I don't think you need to pray for me. He said, oh, no, if you can't get off it, there's a good way to use it and a bad way to use it. I said, no, I can't get off it. But you don't need to pray for me about it. I said, there's other things you need to pray for me about, but not this. He kind of looked at me funny. You know, kind of like denial is one of the first signs of addiction kind of a thing. And I said, buddy, you can't get off something you ain't on. And then he got real mad. (laughs) Oh, what you will get out of the fallen creature is contention with God. But you know what God says they ought to do? Hush. The Hebrew fascinates me. Man, I, I, I can't even hardly dip my pinky into it, but it fascinates me. So much of it sounds exactly like what it means. And so when he says that judgment is real and judgment is tactile and there are so many dead bodies that are thrown everywhere, the next thing he says in the Hebrew is literally, hush, silence. Be quiet. For there is nothing that has befallen you that you did not earn. Why silence? Because God's judgment is just. That's why. It's what is supposed to happen. If the scepter is righteousness and wickedness is the order of the day, then the result is judgment. And as God told Adam, the wage of sin will be death. It's what should be. Do you understand that one of, you know, we look back, if I may, this morning for just a moment. We look back at major events in 
the history of grace. And, and if we want to rewind, I think, you know, over the last half of a millennia or so, we would certainly look at the Reformation and here in America at the First Great Awakening. In the last half millennia, these are undoubtedly the two major events. You know, if you're looking at a topography, these are the, these are the peaks, man. These are the mountains of, of the movement of the Spirit and of, of grace coming in a, in a wholesale fashion, if I may use that kind of language, to men. And if you look back, at the gospel, the way it was being preached during those two events, compared to the way that it's being preached today, one of the major, if not the major difference, is during both of those events, there was a preaching of the gospel that did not shy away from the condemnation of sinners and the judgment that was very real that was hanging immediately over their head in such a man and, and it was preached in such a way it wasn't even preached as a formula when you look back at those two events, the gospel wasn't preached as a formula where it said, listen, you're a sinner and there's consequences to that. And so, therefore, what you should do is respond to God in a certain way in order to fix the dilemma you're in. That's not the way the gospel was preached. When you look back at those events, the way the gospel was preached was preached as a set of realities. You are a sinner. Judgment hangs over your head. You deserve damnation. It is coming. And He deserves for you to bow the knee and exalt Him. And what happened in salvation was the reality of the sinner bowing the knee and exalting him. And then we moved in the 1950s and the 1960s to this formula that said, okay, you're in a bad circumstance, here's how you fix it, do this, execute, and you will please God. Man, if you look back to the Great Awakening, if you look back to, to the Reformation, what those guys were saying is you are condemned under sin and God is worthy of your worship whether He saves you or not, so worship Him. And the thing is, you were seeing more people saved than the church in America today can even dream of no matter how slick they try to fancy it up or how much curriculum they write. They were being saved by the millions with preachers standing in the pulpit going, judgment is real. God deserves to be worshipped. Worship Him. I mean, you literally have Jonathan Edwards writing 
the, the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. And he's writing and he's saying, look, here's the deal. Even if he condemns me to hell, I will bow the knee and worship him in the midst of the flames. That's the kind of faith that brings forth new life. It's not a deal you broker. You're not hedging your bet. I can tell you this, it won't be that here. Lord willing, it'll never be that here. Please, Lord, keep us. Keep us. Spare us from our own high thoughts. Spare us from our pragmatism. This says this is a more effectual way. Judgment is real. Read Amos chapter 8. If you can't get down with that, you don't have a problem with me. You got a problem with this. Don't contend against God. Listen to me. And see, that sounds real tough. I get it. That sounds real tough. And everybody says, man, Brian's a hard nose. Don't do it. Don't do it. What I'm trying to do is keep you. Don't do it. Contending with him will never be successful. You won't win. Mark said something a couple weeks ago. We were in elders' prayer in the morning. Everybody starts in the negative. Such is the nature of the children of Adam. This is where you start. And then you continue to run up the debt. But you start in the negative. Don't contend against God. We sing often Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1, well, just let's read the whole thing. Why do the nations rage? And when you read Amos chapter 8, this is the question you have to ask yourself. Why would you rage against this? Why would you rage against it? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot. What is the nature of their plotting? Their plotting is in vain. That means it's without point or purpose. It will come to no good end. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, you can't preach a judgy God because if you do, people won't come and listen. Problem is, is Scripture preaches a judgy God. 
And you know, when God showed up, if you're here on Wednesday nights, when He showed up in the incarnation in the flesh and started preaching, guess what? A lot of people wouldn't come and listen. Drew a big crowd at first, right until they started hearing what He was actually saying, and then they just went. You know what God's response is to those that contend against Him? He laughs in derision. Now guys, let me tell you, and this is what I mean. I'm pleading. You don't want God to laugh in your face. You don't. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then... He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree the Lord, the Lord has said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, because this is true of Christ, you know, that's who he's speaking about. I tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Today I've brought you forth. And what will you do? I will make the nations your heritage. And you will break them with a rod of iron. So what do you do? Here's what you do. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. How many times is the gospel being preached this Sunday morning where it's being preached in such a way that says, kiss the son lest he be angry? How many times is it being preached where it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling? And I don't have time to develop it this morning. I'm already behind. But how many times have we said, both in Sunday school and from the pulpit, how many times has Mark said it? How many times have Jim said it? How many times have we said, in both Sunday school and the pulpit, that God has things that aren't like men's things? You say, man, how can I rejoice if I'm fearful? How can, how can I come exalting Him if I'm trembling? Friend, God is different. He's different. He's not like your football team. He's not like your He's not like your favorite TV show. He's not like your your fast car. He's different. Men will try to contend. But they shouldn't. Paul will say in Romans chapter 9, "Who are you, O man, to answer back to God?" Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? In Amos chapter 8, 
We see that things are not always the way they appear to men. We see that judgment is real, that it is tactile, and men may try to contend with God against that thing, but it is real whether they like it or not, because truth is not relative, it is absolute. In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 12, we see something that is much more terrifying than the fact that judgment is real. In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 12, we see that the judgment that is real is often spiritual and not simply physical. And so in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. You know, when we looked at this in detail, I left it out because it's, for time's sake, but I want to point it out today. The famine of the word, the drought of the word of the Lord that he is going to send upon them is going to send them into such a state of delirious confusion that when they go wandering, they're not even going to have their head in the game enough to wander from north to south. They're going to wander from north to east. Which is basically saying it's someone spinning like a top or flopping like a fish. Man, when the word of the, the, the thing that is terrifying about Amos chapter 8 is not simply that judgment is real, but that God is willing in his judgment to move beyond. Assyrians and siege engines, trebuchets, Greek fire. He's willing to move beyond the starvation and the thirst of a siege. He's willing to move beyond things of this temporal world and to move into things that are eternal. There will be a famine of the word. The word that brings salvation. When you take your God in your own hand and you fashion him to be the way that you want him to be, then when this judgment comes to its full, what you will get is that and that alone and not the actual word of God that brings salvation. exactly what happened in Israel. They would have been so much better off worshiping Baal. Isn't that a crazy statement? Isn't that an insane statement? But it holds, man. You, I mean, it holds true. They would have been so much better off worshiping Baal. Man, look, guys, let me tell you, everybody gets all wound up. And, and look, I get it. I, you know, you, you've got these, these guys that are really 
more just angry atheists than they probably are anything else. Um, and, you know, they, they're doing the whole deal where they, they set up the Satan statue, you know, next to the Ten Commandments in different municipalities and college campuses and all this kind of stuff, free speech. And if you're going to give platform to this, you got to give platform to us. And these guys are about as Satanist as my dog is, I think, for the most part. What they are is God-haters to the core, and and so what they want to do is is make a point and so they set up their little statue of the goat or whatever and get everybody you know all all wound up and um and 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 people with with a, you know a lot of passion and zeal you know want to want to respond to that and of course what they want is not to elevate some kind of satan worship what they want is for the word of God to go away. So they're not actually, they, they are feigning wanting a positive response. We want to be able to do our little deal. They do the same thing. They've got an after school Satan club. They'll come in, you got an after school Bible club. They want to do the after school Satan club. And when you look at it, it's nothing more than secularism for the most part with a Satan sticker on it. Friends, the threat, the spiritual threat in the world of men is not primarily the open worship of demons. The spiritual threat is the hidden worship of demons by the removal of the Word of God. And it is so much slicker and so much more effective than its proactive brother. The guy with the pentagram tattoo on his forehead is really not much of a threat to this society. What's a threat is the removal of this, which will then be replaced by the pride of men which Scripture says is idolatry, which Scripture says is the worship of demons. If your business is deception, you don't come in through the front door. They want a famine of the word. They don't want to put their little statue up. They don't think your kids are going to be coming down to the city park and bowing down and worship their Satan statue. What they want to do is make you so uncomfortable that you're willing to remove the Word of God to get rid of that. Because they know that vacuum will be filled with one thing, and it is a picture of Adam. It's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. There probably wasn't even an actual demon behind that statue, but buddy, there'll be one in that. Gotcha. There is a very real famine of the word today. It wasn't just in Israel. There's a famine of the word today. I would be fascinated. It would cost millions of dollars to do. 
I wish I wish some I wish somebody some statistical organization some somebody that we could trust I would love would love to see a one year rundown of what scriptures were preached in the pulpits of the United States over the course of 52 consecutive weeks I would love for them to take a survey where every pulpit for 52 weeks in the United States, they said, I want to know what scripture you preached this morning. And the next one and the next one and the next one for 52 weeks. And guys, I don't know, I don't know what that would look like, but I'm get, if I was just guessing, I would guess that about 20% of scripture, and that may be, that may be generous. About 20% of this book is what's actually being preached, and they're preaching the same 20% over and over and over and over and over and over and over. I was talking to some preachers the other day, and they said, man, you know, you got out of Romans. I said, yeah, it took like six years. They said, where are you at now? I was like, Amos. I'm like, whoa. I said, where are you going next? I said, Matthew. And they were like, man, I bet people are going to be relieved after Romans and Amos to get to Matthew. And I was like, why would you think that? And they're like, well, Romans is so difficult and Amos is so brutal. And I said, do you think a different God wrote Matthew than wrote Romans and Amos? Do you think, Amos, do you think it's going to be different? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you read it? The same God that doesn't change, that's immutable, that wrote Romans and, and, and Amos? Hosea, do you think he's going to write something different? Friends, I, I, I aspire to be a broken record. This is him. The only reason that you get variety is because he's infinite and we only have an hour and a half. So you can only talk about this today and then the next and then the next to try to, you know, try to scoop this thing up. There's a famine of the word today in our pulpits. You say, oh, you're speaking bad about the church. I speak the truth. It's what they said about Luther. It's what they said about Calvin. Buddy, when you're sick, you're sick. If you, do, if you deny it, you will die. There's a famine of the word today. The denominations that came out of the Great Reformation and the Great Awakening are failing. Let me rephrase that. They have failed. The Presbyterians are embracing sodomy. Not tolerating it, embracing it. Except for a small, splintered fraction, the Lutherans are doing the same. You want to talk about the Great Awakening in America? John Wesley would be spinning in his wagon. I remember my dad saying, well... You know, the only real difference between the Methodists and the Baptists is the 
Methodists will let you drink. Man, the Methodist Church is currently ordaining a drag queen that preaches in drag from the pulpit. How about that? Don't throw rocks in glass houses. Southern Baptists are replacing the restraint of the Holy Spirit with ethics contracts that you sign. They're replacing the discernment of the Holy Spirit with non-disclosure agreements, which we currently hand out the way we used to hand out gospel tracts. Heaven forbid anybody know what we talk about. Man, makes me uncomfortable. Good, it should. We're replacing the Southern Baptists, are replacing church discipline with applause. Saddleback, Rick Warren, everybody's hero, purpose driven life has purposed itself to ordain three women pastors. And we couldn't even get enough votes. To discuss it from the floor. The great fundamentalist Southern Baptist couldn't get enough votes at the convention to even discuss whether or not that was right or wrong. We clapped. But if you talk about it, you're a bad guy. Because that's somehow sinfully divisive. Which, interestingly enough, is exactly what Amos was told. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go and flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. I don't worship in Nashville. There's a famine of the word. A famine of the word. And no matter how hard they try to spin it, and no matter how hard, and I'm not just talking about Baptists here, I'm just talking just across the board. No matter how hard they try to spin it. No matter how hard they try to go, look, if you preach the stuff this says, what you're going to do is you're going to see a decrease in baptisms. You're going to see a decrease in membership. You're going to see a decrease in people coming to the Lord. Okay, the first one, I'll say this. I'll say with Paul that the Lord didn't send me to baptize. Oh, man, I'll baptize you. Amen. That's not what he sent us to do. Baptism is a testimony. What he sent us to do was preach the gospel so that there could be a testimony. You see, a decrease in membership. I've worked two jobs before. 
Paul did. Peter did. Worked for them. You'll see a decrease in salvation. That's a lie. First two may be right. Second one's a lie. The word is life. In all its hardness, in all of its difficulty, in all of its unyieldingness, this word is dangerous. It almost got Amos killed. I mean, Amos 7, 1, 10 through 11 is a threat on his life. Got all the apostles killed except for one. This word is dangerous. It always will be. This word is life. It's hard, it's unyielding, it's absolute. And right in the midst of it is grace and hope and salvation. Where if it was not for the harsh unyieldingness, there would be no grace, hope, or salvation. The turn of a phrase. The mystery hidden. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? You read that. And you read that in the context that Amos was saying it. And you go, man, there's no hope. There is no hope. Man, if you're an Israelite, you are done. This deal's over. There shouldn't be this part. This should end right there. He swore. It's done. And yet, Paul says the gospel was a mystery that was hidden in ages past. Now, for something to be a mystery, it has to first, by definition, exist. 
You can't hide something that's not real. For something to be a mystery and for something to be hidden, it must first exist, and then it must be couched in such a condition that it is not seen. And so if you read Amos in its context, the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Then surely there is no hope for Jacob. And there is no hope for Israel. We, things aren't always what they seem. They look good, but they're not. It feels easy. It feels secure, but it's not. Judgment is real. Judgment is tactile. You can't even contend with God about it. It's just going to be what it's going to be. And contending is only going to make it worse. There's a famine of the word in the land in such a way that, that we, we can't even know what he would have us to do. And yet in the midst of this is this statement. A statement that Paul will later enlighten us on in Romans chapter 11. In verses 11 through 16. The apostle writes and says, So I ask, did they stumble? Speaking of the people of Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not being. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. God isn't just accomplishing, accomplishing grace in the midst of judgment. He is accomplishing much grace in the midst of judgment. You look at Amos and you go, man, Israel is spent. And the fact of the matter is, is they're not spent. God swore by a standard that was destined to fail. He swore by the pride of Jacob. A standard that he would not, not that would not only fail, but that he would cause to fail. And until it does, it provides the age of salvation for the Gentiles, for you and for me. Until such a day that the salvation of the Gentiles provides for the salvation of Jacob. Now what a perfect deal is that? It's so perfect that later in chapter 11, Paul is just going to kind of popcorn and blow his fuse and go, oh, the riches and the depth and the wisdom 
of the mercy of God. Look what he's done. He held you over to disobedience so they could be saved, and then he held them over to disobedience so you could be saved, to provoke them to jealousy so that they could be saved, so that all of you together would be saved. What we learn out of Amos chapter 8, things aren't what they look like necessarily. God's truth defines reality. God's judgment is real. It is tactile in this world, but more troubling, it is often spiritual. There's no good to contend against Him. All you will do is worsen your plight. What we need to be doing is bowing the knee lest we find ourselves in a position that we're already in to a large extent in this country as they were in theirs where there is a famine of the Word. So that you can't figure it. You understand the problem is if you bring your God in your own hand, it produces a situation where eventually there is no word to go back to to figure out who God actually is. And at that point in time, well, let me tell you what happens. What happens culturally at that point in time? There's still hope for individuals in the midst of that, but culturally speaking, in that point of time, superpowers cease to exist. If it can happen to... I go back to Daniel. If it can happen to Babylon, if it can happen to Persia, if it can happen to Greece, if it can happen to Rome... If it can happen to Israel, who was the apple of his eye, then some little Gentile dog country that's been around for less than three centuries won't have a prayer apart from this book. And yet, in the midst of that, in the, in the midst of, of Israel's dissolving, God is using that to produce the church as we understand it today. Not just here at Mount Zion, but I mean, like, as we understand, He was using that, according to Paul in chapter 11, to bring about. The, the, the revealing of the mystery of the gospel and the, the church evident as we understand it today. And so if we're going to recap chapter 8, and we're going to say things aren't always what they seem, judgment is real, judgment is tactile, um, judgment is spiritual, there's no use in contending with God, it makes it worse, and in the midst of that there is grace, and that grace is profound. To the point that it is this situation that brought about the opportunity for me to be saved and for you to be saved personally. Personally. This is how you look at Amos, you go, it's really rough, but guess what? It's how we got to Brian Williams at seven years old laying in bed accepting Christ. Are you okay with that? 
I think that's the real question we need to leave ourselves with moving out of Amos chapter 8. Are you cool with that? Or does that make you feel icky about God? A little too rough for you? I need my salvation to be a little neater and cleaner than that. Friend, if you want salvation cleaner than that, what I would tell you is that you will not have salvation. For there is one. And this is it. See, the question, what I'm really asking you out of Amos chapter 8 is do you trust God? Do you really trust Him? Because you've got to put yourself in Israel's position. You gotta put, they have all these promises that God has said, man, I'm going to do this, 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 I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for you. I will never separate from you. I will never depart from you. I will never forsake you. You'll be my people. I will be your God. You're going to have the land. You're going to, all of these things, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And then he says, okay, I'm done with you. I'll never pass by you again. I'll never forget what you've done. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, you said, you said you wouldn't do this. This can only be bad. You said there would be good things for us. This can only be bad. You've abandoned me. You've not fulfilled your end of the bargain. You're not doing what is right. Or can you bow your knee and say, yes, Lord? If you say so. I don't understand it. Because look, man, Paul's not going to crack the nut on this deal for another 750 years. The mystery, the tension in Amos chapter 8 is not going to be resolved for 750 years. Nobody that hears the word in real time that Amos was preaching is going to understand how it all comes to its resolution. We do. We get to look back and go, oh man, look what he was doing. They don't get that. What you can do in Amos' day is either take God at face value or reject God at face value. Those are the two options. One will lead to damnation. The other one will lead to salvation. And so, man, I ask you, if we're going to recap and move on from Amos chapter 8, this is the question we end up with is, are you cool with it? Are you cool with it? Do you trust Him? Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Do you hold to your conviction when you can't see it?
Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And since we're talking about faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, I think it's very self-evident that the reward for those who seek him is not seen in the moment either. This is very real world application. We were getting ready to leave. You know, funny things fly through your head. We're getting ready to leave Louisiana and head back north. Yesterday is early in the morning. Sun hadn't come up yet, and throwing an ice chest in the back of the truck. And Mark's packing his stuff up. You know, it's that time of day where you're just you're praying and thinking about the day that lies ahead. And you know, it's. 750 miles or so back home and a lot of highway between here and there. You know, you think to yourself, you know, Lord, I hope the truck doesn't break down and you give us safe travel. I mean, certainly, you know, you know, Aaron and Landry is not outside of your mind at that point in time. I want to get home to my wife. All those sorts of things and Stuff runs through your head, and, and then you just get this kind of pause. And what Scripture says is a peace that surpasses understanding. You got to be careful here because this can become a cop out. But if it's real, it's glorious. And you, and you just kind of stop and go, you know what, Lord, I'm whatever you've got to be great. So we're going to hop in this truck designed by men manufactured by men who manufactured by union men and we're going to fly down the road at 75 miles an hour full of vehicles manufactured by other union men and you know what whatever you've got will be good And I'm guilty. I know judgment should hang over my head. And I'm yours. And I know you fully paid for that wrath and judgment. It's not a question in my mind. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with me today? Some may be easier, some may be hard, but I'm convinced that it'll be just right. It's easier to say when you're talking about yourself. 
What happens when you get a kid that goes off the rails? When they just throw everything they can in the face of God, when they're contending with Him as hard as they can go. What happens if you have a spouse that goes off the rails? Is contending with God as hard as he can go, as hard as she can go. It's easier when it's you than when it's somebody that you love. That's what Paul was struggling with in chapter 10 and 11. Man, he was flopping around going, man, I am, my heart is breaking over the fact that my brothers are rejecting Christ. What do you do? That's well, a complex question with a complex answer, and it's different in every single situation, but I can tell you the part that's the same every single time. If it's going to go well, if it has any prayer of going well, then where it starts is, Lord, I trust you and I'm good with it. We talk about faith. Oh, man, we talk about it. You want to go down to the convention? They'll talk about faith. And then they'll hand you a non-disclosure agreement. Because they don't have any faith that the people of God can have any discernment. We'll talk about faith from the pulpit. We'll talk about faith when people are sick. We'll talk about it, but do we really have it? Because what it really is, according to Hebrews chapter 11, is the conviction that God is, that He is good, and that He reward those that seek Him regardless of the circumstance they find themselves in. And so if you look around in Amos chapter 8, and you go, man, it is all going down the toilet. It is Faith that says it doesn't matter. God is good. I trust Him. If it's going down the toilet, it needs to go down the toilet. I'll do everything I can to stand in the place that He has commanded me according to His Word. But if it goes down, it goes down. Whether it be governments or businesses or conventions or families, or men, or your kid. And you go, man, Pastor Brian, that's tough. Man, let me tell you what, that is tough. That's why you said pick up your cross. Because it's tough. It's tough. You're not. I'm not. He is. And so, where do we leave out of Amos chapter 8? Same place we'll land when we get to Matthew chapter 5. Are you cool with him? Because let me tell you something, friends. He ain't going to be cool with you. He don't move. Do you trust Him? Not when it's easy. Not when it's hard. Do you trust Him when it's impossible? 
man, if you don't know him, let me tell you something. I know you won't believe me, and that's okay. I'm going to tell you anyway. You can trust him. As a matter of fact, he's the only thing that you absolutely can trust. I'd like to think you can trust me as far as men go. But you can't absolutely trust me. I'll let you down even if I don't mean to. I'll let you down when I'm trying not to. The person sitting next to you in the pew, they'll do the same thing. He won't. Do you trust him? Even in Amos 8. Do you trust him? Even in Amos 8, if you didn't live long enough to read Romans 11. I pray that you do. Man, you can come to Christ in your pickup truck, laying in a bunk bed, right where you sit. We pray that you do. I'm not finished, but I'm done.